welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Rosemary Onkwe, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Community Voice, Kansas News, National Geographic, Bloomberg Equality, The Root, News One, The Grio, and Scape, formerly known as The Undefeated. Today we'll continue with part three of the article titled, The Search for Lost Slave Ships Left This Diver on an Extraordinary Journey by Tara Roberts, National Geographic, February 7th, 2022. Mozambique and South Africa, Affirmation. My journey begins on Ilha de Mozambique. Mozambique Island, an island just under two miles long and less than a quarter of a mile wide in the north of Mozambique. The island was the colonial capital of Portuguese East Africa from the 16th through the 19th centuries. Portuguese colonizers eventually turned it into a center of the slave trade. Hundreds of thousands of Africans were trafficked from its port. I have come at the invitation of DPW and the Slave Rex Project, hosted by the National Museum of African American History and Culture. The project includes the George Washington University, the Iziko, I-Z-I-K-O, Museums of South Africa, the U.S. National Park Service, and DPW, among others. The island is colorful, reds, pinks, and blues, painted on colonial-style buildings. On non-dive days, I stroll through the cobblestone streets and the dirt path. I eat good food, such as matapa de sirisiri, M-A-T-A-P-A-S-I-R-I, a stew of seaweed, cashews, and coconut milk that looks like creamed spinach. I note bright smiles on friendly faces that say, Tudo bem, how's it going as I pass? I also hear stories of the Sao Jose Aquet d'Africa shipwreck. The Portuguese ship traveled from Lisbon to Mozambique Island in 1794. Traffickers loaded more than 500 people, many of the Makua ethnic group, into the ship's cargo hold. Headed for Brazil, the ship met its fate in the wee hours of the morning on December 27th on the rocks off Cape Town, South Africa. 212 of the captive Africans on board were killed, the survivors sold into slavery. The Slave Rex Project had been on a mission to find the Sao Jose and several other wrecks since 2008. The evidence eventually pointed to the area around Clifton, a suburb of Cape Town. We knew about the shipwreck and Clifton because it was identified by treasure hunters in the 80s as a Dutch ship, said Jaco Boshoff. J-A-C-O-B-O-S-H-O-F-F, 
of the Iziko Museums, the lead archaeologist of the wreck and co-founder of the Slave Rex Project. But he thought maybe the identification was wrong. Let's go have a look. DWP provided divers to assist in the search. While Kent Stewart is my herald, Kamau Sadiki, K-A-M-A-U-S-A-D-I-K-I, has been my guide, my sensei. He has served as my instructor and dive buddy. A shining light of clarity and purpose, he has been on more than 20 missions. He shares what it has meant for him to travel to Cape Town in 2013, to dive into those turbulent waters, and to find and touch artifacts from the San Jose. It was like you can hear the screams and the hollering and the pain and the agony of being on a vessel in shackles, the sinking and breaking up in the sea, he says. You know, in scuba diving, we wear a mask, and sometimes they get foggy, but mine get wet from tears. Trauma, exactly what I feared to face. But then the story shifts and takes a surprising and so affirming turn. After positively identifying the Sao Jose and determining that some of the people held captive in its cargo hold were Makua, the team, which included Bunch and Sadiki, went back to the Makua descendant community in the coastal village of Mosuril, M-O-S-S-U-R-I-L, across from Mozambique Island, to deliver the news. Following the ceremony of singing, dancing, and speeches, Chief Ivano Nohogachi, E-V-A-N-O-N-H-O-G-A-C-H-E, the highest-ranking makua there, presented Bunch with soil from the island in a special cowry shell vessel with explicit instructions. He said that his ancestors have asked that when I go back to South Africa, if I could sprinkle the soil over the side of the wreck, so for the first time since 1794, his people can sleep in their own land, Bunch said. I lost it, Bunch adds, shaking his head as he recalls the scene. I'm crying and I'm thinking about the contradictions, the beauty that, sur that surrounds me, the fact that I am a historian, but this is about how living people feel and think. The team returned to South Africa to carry out Chief Nohogachi's request. It was a rainy, stormy, dreary day on June 2, 2015. About 30 people turned out. Sadiki and two other divers walked into the water and each distributed the soil from the cowrie shell vessel. We stood for a moment, and I think there's one point where we just stood and embraced and let the waves hit and wash us, Siddiqui said. I couldn't speak at all, and tears started flowing down all three of our eyes. After traveling to Cape Town to see the wreck site for myself, I sit on the Sea Point Promenade, a two-mile stretch of palm trees, paved paths, and joggers that connects neighborhoods along the coast. It is adjacent to the location where the Sao Jose sank. I listen to the violence of the crashing waves on a bright sunny day, imagining what it would have been like more than two centuries ago 
as the ship struck those rocks and sank into darkness. My heart aches for what those in the San Jose cargo hold must have felt that night of the wreck. The trauma still seems to exist as an actual energy radiating out from the sea, and I feel it. But this time, I feel something else. Healing. Finality. Resolution that comes from knowing what happened. And I am transported to a place of hope and possibility. I begin to see a way of interpreting one of the most painful parts of American history through a new lens, with a loving perspective, and with the possibility of repairing a deep wound of closure. And that feels revelatory. This article was titled, Part 3, The Search for Lost Slave Ships, Led This Diver on an Extraordinary Journey by Tara Roberts, National Geographic, February 7th, 2022. The next article is titled, Kansas wants more black foster parents to better match families with kids in crisis by Blaise Mesa, B-L-A-I-S-E, Mesa, M-E-S-A, Kansas News Service, Community Voice, March 15, 2022, Manhattan, Kansas. Tara Coleman grew accustomed to being the only person of color at classes for licensed foster parents. Maybe there's one other person of color, she said, but generally not. Coleman isn't surprised that in predominantly white Kansas, black foster parents are rare in the state. That's not to say it could still use more of them. Black kids can thrive in white homes. Still, foster children and parents say the trauma of leaving a family to live with strangers can prove even more unsettling when you throw in a racial divide. Even prosaic things like a familiar dish on the dinner table, the programs playing on the living room TV, the availability of the right hair products, they can all ease the shock of leaving, even temporarily, biological parents behind. I can do anybody's hair, but if you are a black child who has kinky, coily hair, I also have products in my house and can help you do whatever, Coleman said. There's comfort in familiarity. State agencies that license foster parents need all types of people. They want black, white, and Latino families, straight and gay, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, chess fanatics, and soccer obsessives. The Kansas Department for Children and Families didn't respond to requests for comment, and the Kansas News Service didn't find demographic breakdowns of foster parents online. Yet some of the companies hired by the state to run foster care services give a clue about the lack of diversity. Both KVC Kansas and TFI Kansas, two of the state's larger foster agencies, said about 80% of their foster families are white. KVC said only 3.8% of its families are Hispanic though 25% of families did not disclose their ethnic background. 9% of TFI foster homes and 6.8% of KVC foster homes are Black. That roughly reflects the population 
of Kansas, but not the foster population. Black children make up about 20% of out-of-home placements. Similar disparities didn't exist for Asian, Native American, or Hispanic children. Laney Uphoff, L-A-N-E-Y-U-P-H-O-F-F, Director for Recruitment for TFI Family Services, said the agency has more Black children in its care than it has Black homes. A study published in the U.S. National Library of Medicine examined over 100 children in New York who entered foster care. It measured how different languages, countries of origin, and ethnicity impacted children. The study found that children with different cultural backgrounds than their caregivers were more vulnerable to social isolation, depression, and behavior problems. Nathan Ross, a black child adopted by white parents in Missouri, said that difference affected his sense of belonging and even made him feel shame. He originally wasn't interested in connecting to anyone, and seeing that we looked different made it easier. Not having reference points, people who look like me, it does make you feel kind of isolated, he said. Ross lived with a foster family until he was placed with his adoptive family. Both sets of parents were white. He did live with his biological parents until age 10, and he was placed with siblings, but he struggled to connect with his cultural identity. Ross has begun to connect with this culture as an adult, but he wonders how his life would have been different if that had come earlier. It really feels like they were two separate things. I have my family, and then I have my racial identity formation and trying to figure that out. But they didn't really go together because no one really bridged that for me, he said. You don't quite fit into either world. Race also wasn't talked about much during his childhood. That made talking about the racism he experienced uncomfortable. Ross loves his adoptive parents and has no regrets about how he was raised, but he said foster care agencies need to invest in communities more so children aren't put in his position. TFI is working with influential Black leaders in our community and recently hired a diversity, equality, and inclusion team to examine how the agency handles diversity. It partnered with salons to teach parents how to care for all hair types and has staff take cultural competency courses. KVC Kansas launched a campaign to get more Black parents to become licensed. Black homes were only 4% of KVC's foster parent population around six months ago when the campaign started. Do I think we're doing enough? Yes and no. Uphoff, U-P-H-O-F-F of TFI. We're doing everything that we know how to do right now. Are we still looking at ways to improve? Absolutely. This article was written by Blaze Mesa, Kansas News Service, Community Voice, March 15, 2022. The next article is titled, White House Steps Up Support 
or HBCUs after bomb threats with funding for mental health services security training. By April Ryan, The Grio, March 17, 2022. The Biden administration is leaning in on addressing the countless bomb threats made against historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, and other minority and religious institutions this year. In response to the threats of violence, the White House held an event on Wednesday to announce federal interagency efforts to protect those who have been targeted, particularly HBCU students, faculty, and staff. At an event held in the South Court Auditorium on the White House campus, Vice President Kamala Harris, along with Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, Attorney General Merrick Garland, and Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security, Deputy John Tien, T-I-E-N, unveiled new measures the federal government is particularly taking to address the rise of threats against HBCUs. Our administration is sending a very clear message. This intimidation will not stand and we will not be intimidated. We will do everything in our power to protect all our communities from violence and from hate. We are all in this together and we must stand together, said Vice President Harris. Every American should be able to learn, work, worship, and gather without fear. It is our duty to do everything we can to protect all our communities from harm against any one of our communities. This is a harm against all of us. On behalf of the Biden administration, Harris announced short-term grants that will be available for HBCU's campuses that received threats that significantly disrupt the learning environment. The Project Serve grants provides up to $150,000 per school that can be used by schools to hire mental health professionals, enhance campus security, and provide specialized training to their security staff. The Department of Education is working with the impacted schools to determine the need. Attorney General Merrick Garland revealed that 31 FBI field offices are investigating the HBCU bomb threats that began in January and picked up in February during Black History Month. The vice president, a graduate of Howard University, noted that 80 anonymous threats have been made against sanctuaries, schools, and other places of peace, including HBCUs. The issue was apparently so important that Vice President Harris made the announcement of protecting HBCUs her only public event Wednesday as her husband, Doug Emhoff, covered from a recent COVID-19 diagnosis. The second gentleman is said to have mild COVID symptoms. The White House was sure to emphasize that the vice president followed COVID protocols during the event. Morgan State University President David Kwabena, K-W-A-B-E-N-A Wilson, told the Grio that he was pleased with the Biden administration's all-of-government effort to address safety and mental health on HBCU's campuses. I'm very pleased to see this connective tissue 
between the Justice Department, the FBI, Homeland Security, all working together. And they have been doing this since day one. They have reached out to us, have provided us with resources in terms of programmatic resources that we could draw upon to help us respond in a timely fashion to what we were seeing, said Dr. Wilson. He added, the White House is now saying that institutions like Morgan and other HBCU schools in this space where we have had to draw upon our own operating resources, parsimonious as they are, to enable us to hire more counselors, to hire more security guards, and to create, if you will, another kind of protective layer on our campus that we can now apply to get some federal support to enable us to do that. President Wilson said, during the last bomb threat at Morgan State, which has received several. About two weeks ago, the Secretary of the Army happened to be on the campus at the time for a day-long focus on research the university is conducting that can benefit the United Army. That day, Wilson said he decided to keep the Baltimore City campus open. Last month, as previously reported by the GRIO, Dr. Wilson was invited to participate in a hearing held by a House Judiciary Subcommittee. It is unthinkable that we could have an individual or individuals out there who are rooted in so much hate that they would target institutions that have simply always been about doing the right thing. These are institutions that came into existence because they wanted to taste the magic of the ideals embedded in our Constitution that everyone was created equal, said Wilson, who is seeing record numbers in enrollment this year at Morgan State and an 8 to 10% increase in the number of applications for the next academic year. Federal officials have identified teenagers as the alleged culprits in the bomb threat to the HBCUs. However, the investigation is still underway and university presidents have been asked not to share any information about the threats. Democratic U.S. Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney of New York, who is the head of the House Government Oversight and Reform Committee, was in attendance for Wednesday's White House announcement. Maloney is chairing a hearing Thursday to get to the root cause of why these bomb threats have continued to occur. Maloney says students and educators are going to be part of the conversation on seeking solutions during the hearing. Meanwhile, with a heightened attention on HBCUs, law enforcement officials are concerned that there may be copycat incidents. In an exclusive interview with the GRIO, Education Secretary Cardona said, we know that copycats always look for an opportunity, but what they should be seeing now is that the full support of the federal government here behind our HBCUs, that we're not going to spare any expense to get those folks that are disrupting our schools, and that we're not going to spare any expense when it comes to making sure that our campuses are safe. He added, HBCUs, as I said in my remarks, do so much for our country. We need to show that we're supporting them 
not only in talk, but also by providing the resources that they need to get the job done. This article is titled, White House Steps Up Support for HBCUs After Bomb Threats with Funding for Mental Health Services, Security Training, by April Ryan, The Grio, March 17, 2022. The next article is titled, Serena Williams, Venture Capital, Fundraises, $111 million by Elena Peng, P-E-N-G, Bloomberg Equality, March 1st, 2022. Tennis great Serena Williams has raised $111 million for an early stage venture capital fund with a focus on diversity, the firm said Tuesday. About three quarters of the companies backed by Serena Ventures, LLC, are led by founders from underrepresented communities, the firm had said. Founded in 2014, it currently has a portfolio of about 60 startups, according to the New York Times, which reported the news earlier Tuesday. The firm has leaned into crypto, investing in NFT marketplace, Bitski, B-I-T-S-K-I, and Bitcoin rewards application, Lolly. Last month, Serena Ventures said it had invested in Nestcoin, a Nigeria-based Web3 startup aiming to make cryptocurrency more accessible. Also last month, Williams' husband, the Reddit co-founder Alexis Ohanian, O-H-A-N-I-A-N, unveiled a $510 million crypto-focused fund at his own venture capital firm. Other investments for Serena included the financial tech company Esusu, E-S-U-S-U, and online course platform Masterclass, where Williams has also taught classes. This article is titled, Serena Williams Venture Capital Fund Raises $111 Million by Elena Peng, Bloomberg Equality, March 1st, 2022. The next article is titled, Gabrielle Union, Star of Cheaper by the Dozen, Speaks Out on Diversity and Inclusion by Stephanie Holland, The Root, March 17, 2022. At this point in her career, Gabrielle Union has nothing to prove, and she doesn't have time to wait around for others to give her opportunities. That's why the busy actress-producer shepherds her own projects into existence. For her new Disney Plus movie, Cheaper by the Dozen, Union spoke with The Root about managing the controlled chaos of a full set of kids and animals, showcasing blended families and working with co-star Zach Braff, B-R-A-F-F. Cheaper by the Dozen is a familiar story of a blended family of 12, figuring out how to navigate the daily craziness of their lives. With so much happening on set, it was up to Union and Braff to keep things fun, or for it to appear that way. There were some days that were very fun, and there were some days I'm glad it looks that way in the movie, because it was a little chaotic on the set. 
she said. We tried to balance. I was bad cop, Zach was good cop, and between us, we made sure they were focused, but also had a good time. That's a lot of moving parts. With all those kids and animals, it was challenging for sure. With COVID limiting their interactions before production, Union compared her relationship with Braff to 90 Day Fiancé. Due to COVID, all meetings were via Zoom, so it's hard to really tell how you're going to interact with somebody, Union said. But on set immediately, you and this person you just met are in charge of 10 kids, multiple animals, and you've got to figure it out quick. Versions of Cheaper by the Dozen haven't exactly been the most diverse films. They've all featured white families. For Union, it was essential to portray a more modern, authentic, blended family, one that included black and brown faces. We wanted to showcase a blended family. Families come in all sizes, shapes, and configurations. Chosen families, extended families under one roof, and that's common in most communities of color, certainly in the black community, she said, but we never get to see those kinds of families celebrated. We wanted to be a part of showcasing that you could make a family-friendly fair that is diverse and inclusive in front of and behind the camera. If you want me to be a part of your production, I have certain standards and I refuse to go backwards at this point, Union continued. We had amazing partners and everyone is trying to push us forward and celebrate and call in all families and allow you to see yourself celebrated on screen. For proof that the actress producer is willing to back up her principles, look no further than her comments on Florida Don't Say Gay Bill. While on the red carpet for the premiere of Cheaper by the Dozen, Union, who is the stepmother to transgender daughter Zaya Wade, Z-A-Y-A, was asked about her feelings on legislators' attacks on LGBTQ plus youth. Without specifically mentioning Disney, she made it very clear what she thinks of companies who public talk about inclusion and privately support hatred and oppression. Cheaper by the Dozen premieres on Disney Plus Friday, March 18th. This article was titled Gabrielle Union, star of Cheaper by the Dozen, Speaks Out on Diversity and Inclusion by Stephanie Holland, The Root, March 17th, 2022. The next article is titled March Madness Money. Are HBCUs treated fairly during the NCAA tournament? By Donovan Dooley, D-O-O-L-E-Y, March 15th, 2022. The NCAA tournament is arguably the biggest event in all of college athletics. The craziness of this tournament on both the men's and women's sides has led to heartbreak, joy, and unforgettable moments for everyone involved. It also brings a sizable payday for many conferences, some more than others. HBCU conferences like the SWAC and the MEAC find themselves on the lower end of the spectrum. According to USA Today, 
from 1997 through 2018, the Big Ten Conference has been paid the most at $340.4 million, while the SWAC got only $25 million, which is nearly the minimum amount that a conference can receive during that time. The reasoning for this can get very complicated for people who are unfamiliar with the intricacies of the tournament. But to make things plain and simple, the more games the teams in your athletic conference win, the more money the conference receives. Teams get paid for making the tournament and for winning games while they are there. These payments are called units. The 2021 units were valued at $337,141, according to the NCAA. Usually, that number increases about 3% annually. The value of the units in 2022 will be applied to units earned by conferences over the previous six tournaments. So basically, every time a team in the SWAC or MEAC has made the tournament or won a tournament game in the last six years, the conference will get paid the unit value that's designed for the current year. The MEAC and the SWAC will always get at least one team each into the tournament under the current format. Every single division, one conference is granted one automatic qualifier to the tournament. So these conferences are guaranteed at least one unit payment every year. However, they rarely are allowed to gain more because of how the seeding works in the tournament. The 68 teams that make the tournament are all ranked based on a variety of factors, such as record, strength of schedule, and NET to determine seedings. Net is more analytical. Net is a more analytical breakdown of how good a team is, which takes into account those things such as efficiency and margin of victory. All these considerations include personal biases about which conferences the NCAA selection committee thinks are better and impact seeding. The higher your seed, the harder the teams you have to face. As you can imagine, HBCUs usually get ranked toward the bottom, which means they typically have the highest seeds possible. This leads to an HBCU having to face one of the best teams in college basketball super early in the tournament, which typically thwarts their chances of picking up wins and unit payments. While stats and numbers play a role in their seedings, there is speculation that antiquated notions about the brand of basketball HBCU conferences play also contribute to their perception in the eyes of the committee all of which impacts their seedings. Let's look at this year. Texas Southern will represent the men in the SWAC as a 16 seed, but they will have to compete on Tuesday in a first four play-in game versus Texas A&M Corpus Christi for a chance to play top-seeded Kansas. Jackson State women's hoops team is one of the hottest in the country. They've won 21 games in a row and will be the SWAC representative in the women's turning. 
they received a 14 seed and will have to play three seed LSU on Saturday. For the MEAC, Norfolk State men are a 16 seed and will play one-seeded Baylor in their first game on Thursday. Howard's women are also a 16 seed and will have to win a first four-play in-game versus Incarnate Word on Wednesday for a chance to take on one-seed South Carolina. While the 2011 edition of the play-in game expanded the tournament field to 16 teams and gave HBCUs higher chances to win and earn units against lesser competition, to be fair, this isn't an argument to give HBCUs top seeds in the tournament, but it is interesting to ask honest questions about how HBCU biases could factor into seeding and thus impact these conferences' earning potential. How does a team like Jackson State women's squad that averages nearly 80 points a game and is undefeated in their conference with a nearly 20-point average scoring margin not be in the conversation for a higher seed? Are there still outdated perceptions about what the SWAC and MEAC offer to college basketball? These are the kind of questions we need to ask to make sure our historically black colleges and universities get the treatment they deserve in the NCAA tournament. This article was titled, March Madness Money. Are HBCUs treated fairly during the NCAA tournament? Written by Donovan Dooley, News One, March 15, 2022. The next article is titled, Senator Cory Booker, tells Katanji Brown Jackson exactly what we already knew. You have earned this. You are worthy. By Yolanda Baruch, B-A-R-U-C-H, Blavity News, March 24, 2022. After bearing through three days of a barrage of attacking questions from Republican senators, Senator Cory Booker, Democrat, New Jersey, praised Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson, bringing her to tears Wednesday afternoon, Huff Post reports. Booker praised Jackson's grit and grace and extraordinary demeanor throughout the hearings and acknowledged the disrespect Jackson has endured when questioned by Senator Ted Cruz, Republican Texas, Lindsey Graham, Republican South Carolina, and Josh Hawley, H-A-W-L-E-Y, Republican Missouri. Booker recognized the indignities that faced Black women. Still, he punctuated that statement with, nobody is going to steal my joy. Nobody's going to make me angry, as he relished the fact that Jackson is the first Black woman nominated to the Supreme Court. You got here how every black woman in America who's gotten anywhere has done. Like Ginger Rogers said, 
I did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards in, and in heels, Booker said, according to HuffPost. He continued with his emotional remarks and commended her for being more than just a black woman. You're a person who is so much more than your race and gender, Booker said as he choked up. It's hard for me not to look at you and see my mom, my cousins. I see my ancestors and yours. You have earned this spot. You are worthy. You are a great American. You're here, and I know what it's taken for you to sit in that seat, he added. Booker said Jackson's historic nomination is his harbinger of hope and is proof that this country is getting better. Booker also chastised his Republican colleagues' persistent questioning on her sentencing record concerning various child pornography offenders when she sat as a district judge. The right-wing legislators accused Brown of being too lenient on child predators, according to The Hill. This has not been a surprise, given the history that we all know, but perhaps a little bit of a disappointment. Some of the things that have been said in this hearing, Booker said, of GOP senators' attacks that he described as meritless to the point of demagoguery, quoting the conservative National Review magazine. This article is titled, Senator Cory Booker Tells Katanji Brown Jackson Exactly What We Already Knew. You Have Earned This, You Are Worthy. By Yolanda Baruch, Blavity News, March 24th, 2022. The next articles reflect Women in History Month. The first article is from an online magazine titled LDF, and it's the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, Inc. LDF celebrates Women History Month. Women have always played an essential role in shaping history, but their accomplishments are often ignored or erased. During Women's History Month, we celebrate the women whose courage and intellect have pushed our society towards a more equal union. From Constance Baker Motley, M-O-T-L-E-Y, who co-wrote the argument in Brown versus Brown of Education, to Jean Fairfax, the founding director of LDF's Division of Legal, Information, and Community Services, our history was molded by the brilliance of female legal scholars organizers, and activists. Constance Baker Motley, M-O-T-L-E-Y. One of 12 children and the daughter of immigrants, Constance Baker Motley rose to become the first Black woman to ever argue a case before the U.S. Supreme Court. The civil rights movement's successes were a result of the strength and sacrifice of thousands of women. In roles big and small, the victories of the movement belong to them as well. LDF's founding team included many women whose accomplishments are central to our work today. After working with LDF founder Thurgood Marshall, Motley became LDF's first female attorney and wrote the original complaint in the landmark case 
Brown versus Board of Education. Devoted to the cause of equal justice, Motley faced the danger of her work head-on, from driving through Ku Klux Klan territory to defend the right of black students to attend the University of Georgia, to spending hours in county jails across the Deep South helping to secure the release like Martin Luther King Jr. Jean Fairfax Black families who spoke out against segregated schools were often the target of devastating economic reprisals. Jean Fairfax was on the ground to make sure that they would still be able to put food on the table. A largely unsung hero of the civil rights movement, Fairfax served as the director of community services at LDF for decades, where she was instrumental in organizing black families in school desegregation cases. Fairfax drove LDF attorneys through rural Leake County, Mississippi, to meet with parents as they faced the difficult decision of whether to send their children to potentially hostile white schools, traveling to cotton fields by the light of kerosene lamps. To talk to black families about integration, she was intimately involved in the first desegregation of schools throughout Mississippi. Elaine Jones Coming of age in the Jim Crow South, Elaine Jones knew firsthand the precarious nature of black freedom. After becoming the first African-American woman to graduate from the University of Virginia School of Law, she dedicated her career to civil rights. As an LDF lawyer, Jones was one of the first African-American women to defend death row inmates. Her trials were regularly picketed by the Ku Klux Klan, but Jones was undeterred. In Furman, F-U-R-M-A-N versus Georgia, Jones successfully argued in the U.S. Supreme Court against the arbitrary application of the death penalty. Though the full moratorium on capital punishment was later overturned, it remains a landmark case for equal justice. In 1993, Jones became the first woman to serve as president and director counsel of LDF. Her leadership saw the successful defense of affirmative action in Gratz, G-R-A-T-Z, versus Bollinger, B-O-L-L-I-N-G-E-R, and the expansion of litigation to include health care and environmental justice. Mary Hamilton Mary Hamilton, an activist and freedom writer, was arrested multiple times in the course of her organizing, but it was a court appearance in 1963 that would lead to a groundbreaking victory for African Americans. Hamilton worked with the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, C-O-R-E, as one of the only two female field secretaries for the organization and the first sent to organize in the South. A remarkably effective community organizer, she was well known throughout the movement for riding into small rural towns in the South and organizing nonviolent protests. Called to testify as a witness in a case in Alabama, the prosecutor referred to Hamilton only by her first name, as was the custom when addressing African Americans in the courtroom. The honorifics of Mr., Miss, or Mrs. were reserved only for whites. Hamilton refused to respond to the prosecutor and stated that she would answer only when addressed respectfully. The judge found her in contempt of court, fined her $50, and sentenced her to five days in jail. Hamilton refused to respond to the prosecutor. Represented by LDF attorneys, Hamilton's case 
went to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled in her favor in the 1964 landmark decision Hamilton v. Alabama. The decision established that minority groups should be addressed with the same courtesies and honorifics as whites. While this story may not be well known today, Hamilton's victory made headlines around the country and immediately put her shoulder to shoulder with other civil rights heroes of the era. At the age of 10, Catherine Louise Carper became one of the youngest legends in the civil rights movement. She and her mother were the first to sign onto the lawsuit that would eventually become Brown versus Board of Education. The segregated school system forced Catherine to make a harrowing trek to and from school each day, one that totaled over eight hours. Braving rain, snow, and heat, Catherine had to walk through fields and down unpaved roads to get the bus to school. In October of 1952, at the age of 10, Catherine walked into what she described to be the biggest room I had ever seen, with the most people in it, and took the stand to give her testimony. Sheila Holt Orsted, H-O-L-T-O-R-S-T-E-D. For 40 years, a landfill in Dixon, Tennessee, contaminated the Holt family well. By the time they were notified, it was too late for Sheila Holt Orsted and her family. While white families in the area were notified of the potential dangers of toxins in the drinking water, within 48 hours of Dixon officials becoming aware of the issue, affected black families weren't notified until decades later. Due to the contaminated water, many family members became ill. Holt Orsted successfully battled cancer but lost her father to the disease in 2007. The Dixon landfill was located just 54 feet from the family's property. It was Holt Orsted's investigation on behalf of her family that uncovered the contamination of the well water. In litigation, LDF won more than $2 million for the Holt family from the city of Dixon and the state of Tennessee. This article was written by LDF staff to honor Women in History 2022. The next article is titled International Women's Day, Celebrating Black Women Pioneers and Their Many Historic First by News One staff, March 8, 2022. The month of March is recognized as Women's History Month and is dedicated to the celebration of everyday women, as well as pillars and pioneers whose accomplishments have allowed for following generations to feel empowered to constantly break barriers. But neatly tucked within Women's History Month lies International Women's Day, which is celebrated annually on March 8th. And by News One's humble estimation, both celebratory observations far too often overlook the accomplishments of black women, in particular who have been achieving the unthinkable for centuries. Today, this month and forever, News One is highlighting a select few of these black women and their amazing, incomparable feats that continue to reveal themselves in historic first. Kamala Harris, first woman and black woman vice president of the United States. Her story was made on January 20th, 2021, when Kamala Harris was sworn in to become the first black and South Asian woman 
Vice President of the United States. Donning the colors purple and wearing a string of pearls in tribute to her sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Inc., Harris took the pledge while placing her left hand on a Bible that belonged to Thurgood Marshall, the first black Supreme Court Justice. Barbara Jordan, first black woman elected into Congress from the South. After becoming the first black woman in the Texas State Senate, Barbara Jordan did the same by winning her race to represent the Lone Star State in the U.S. House of Representatives in 1972. That made Jordan the first black woman from the South who was elected into Congress. I'll be one of 435, but the 434 will know I'm there, Jordan famously said while campaigning for the seat. Bianca Smith, MLB's first black woman coach. Bianca Smith was hired as a minor league coach for the Red Sox, making her the first black woman coach in the MLB's 151-year history. The athlete-turned-coach has a storied sports career. Smith played softball at the New England-based Dartmouth College and went on to serve in coaching roles at Case Western Reserve in Ohio, the University of Dallas, and most recently, Carroll University in Wisconsin. Her appointment with the Red Sox isn't her first experience with the MLB. She served as an intern in the baseball operations department for the Cincinnati Reds and the Texas Rangers. Smith credits her mother for introducing her to the game. My mom was a fan, not the extent I am where I watch games every day, she said. Even if my team isn't playing, I'm watching the game on MLB TV. My mom would feel like we were actually had to go to the games. She didn't like watching them on TV, but once she introduced the game to me, I fell in love with the strategy. I should have known then that I wanted to coach. May C. Jemison, J-E-M-I-S-O-N, first black woman in space. On September 12, 1999, American physician and former NASA astronaut, May Carol Jemison, fulfilled a lifelong dream she had held ever since she was a small girl in Chicago by becoming the first African-American woman to fly in space. I always assumed I'd go to space, she said to a group of Denison, D-E-N-I-S-O-N, university students in 2004. I thought by now we'd be going into space like you're going to work. Amanda Gorman, the nation's youngest inaugural poet. Amanda Gorman, the nation's first youth poet laureate, captivated the hearts of Americans and likely anyone else who was listening to her deliver the inauguration poem on January 20th, 2021. In doing so, the 23-year-old became the nation's youngest inaugural poet. The Harvard University graduate, whose work focuses on the area where feminism, race, youth, and community intersect, delivered her poem. The Hill We Climb, which touched on a number of topics du jour, including race and national unity. Bessie Coleman, first black woman pilot. Born in 1892, Bessie Coleman was the first black woman to earn a pilot's license. Since there were no flight training opportunities for women and people of color in the United States, she saved her money to study aviation in France. The Texas native got her international pilot's license in 1921. She aspired to open up an educational facility for black 
flyers. She died in 1926 at the age of 34 in a plane crash. Coleman was the epitome of a barrier breaker and her legacy lives on through individuals like Noah, N-O-A, who have become students of her journey. Melody Hobson, H-O-B-S-O-N, first black woman to chair Starbucks board. Melody Hobson was appointed to serve as the chairwoman of Starbucks board of directors, marking the first time a black woman will be at the helm of the world's largest coffee house chains board. The Chicago native and Princeton University graduate has been a fierce advocate for diversity and inclusion within major corporations and previously served on the boards of companies such as DreamWorks Animation, Estee Lauder, and Groupon. Mary Jackson, first black woman to work for NASA. Mary Jackson, the renowned mathematician and NASA astronaut scientist of Hidden Figures fame, had a circuitous route to her historic career as the first black woman to work for the space agency. The HBCU graduate and three of her fellow black women, co-engineers and mathematicians at NASA were awarded congressional gold medals in 2019. That's all the time we have for the African-American Hour. My name is Rosemary Anquay. Thanks for joining me.